Obviously, it is the ANC's elective conference. This is an event that happens every five years. It is not unimportant, despite the weaknesses of the ANC's political party, as well as the ANC-led government as such. It is a dominant party in our political landscape. Consequently, what happens to the ANC internally, immediately, directly, and materially affects the overall political landscape and each of our lives, for better or worse. And so we have to keep tabs on what happens to it, as tiring as it might be, not least middle of December, long weekend at that many of us have had a tough year emotionally, financially, we're still recovering from endogenous and exogenous factors that have crippled the South African economy. And in that context, you are wholly forgiven on a Friday evening, or if you're listening to this over the weekend, if at all, to be jaded by ANC politics. That said, it's my job to try and Make sure that you are up to speed and that even if you are reluctantly trying to keep tabs on what has happened, as a political analyst, I want to give you the essence of what happened and also how I see it, which will at least make your job a little bit easier uh, the next time topics come up at the Bry. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics, how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people saw their children must know these are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said, sing it, sing it. And then they shared that zone. No, I'm not going to apologize. Can I have my iPad, please? So they stole it. So what happened on day one of the ANC's elective conference? Look, for the most part, nothing. Quite literally nothing. It was about seven to eight hours before the event actually happened, which in a really bizarre way is sort of the story of the ANC in government, isn't it? When there isn't looting, there is stasis. And that's exactly what we had on day one. Organizational ineptitude, registration going on forever and ever, as if they're doing this for the first time rather than for more than 50 times already. Sure, there are administrative glitches, but you anticipate those. You've got a plan for emergencies B, C, D, E, because by now you know the typical problems that can happen on registration day. Be that as it may, I want to hone in on the substance, which is the most important event on the program that eventually took place, is the president of the ANC, Cyril Ramaphosa, wearing his hat as ANC president, Now, this is an important matter because it is one in which he takes a big picture view, in theory, and gives an accurate evaluation of how the party has done, measured against what it had intended to do over the last five years or so. I thought that he would do two things from a diagnostic point of view, which is to ask how the organization has done 
as an organization and then how the organization is done in the seat of power within government. As it turned out, he focused pretty much almost exclusively on the latter and not much on the organization. It was more like listening to a state of the nation address, which I think, although not completely anomalous, was a little bit weird. Be that as it may, what do I make of what he had actually said? I think for the most part, the president was being disingenuous by focusing on truths that are convenient and either ignoring ones that are not convenient or quickly mentioning them and then swiftly moving along so that you can't entirely accuse him of not spending time on the land question, not spending time on gender-based violence, not dealing with ongoing racism in society, not mentioning queer rights, for example, not mentioning inequality. But the devil is in the detail, as the saying goes, and the question is, what got the lion's share of attention? What was simply mentioned in passing? Where did he see it fit enough to ask his team to put numbers in? And where did he speak qualitatively rather than with empirical rear? Now, that for me is what's important. And the way I see it is that overall, this was a deceptive speech because although there were many individual true sentences, overall, the South Africa that this man described is not the South Africa that I live in. And I'm sorry, I don't say this as an anti-Ramaphosaite, anti-ANC voter. I am the ultimate swing voter who really am not married to any political party. And as a political analyst, I try and make sense of what is going on inside parties, describe them to you and interpret them and the movements inside of them. So I'm really not vested in a particular view of the president. I honestly am not. But my, my genuine take is that overall, if you were a visitor listening to the president, you'd think that South Africa is a far better place than in fact it is. So it was overwhelmingly on balance, overwhelmingly positive in a way that just doesn't ring true if you know the true facts of the party. And so it's not that he denied that we have challenges, but both in terms of the tone, the time spent, and the language used whenever he referenced an ongoing problem, it was very clear that he wasn't going to sit with that problem for any length of time in the speech. But when he wanted to talk about things where nominally there had been improvements or there's a number that is a number which for the ANC... Alliance leader, ANC, something it is proud of, like the number of persons that get that, that has access to some other state security grant, then suddenly you have the number of 18 million South Africans are being assisted by the state. But what you don't have is the number of South Africans that have managed to become self-sufficient because of an excellent grant system that is aimed not just at making sure they've got something to eat for a couple of days per month, but that eventually they become economically active citizens. You don't have that kind of conversation after that sentence. All you have is 18 million, round of applause. And that's what I mean by it's a deceptive speech. So let's give a couple of examples. They're, just, they're simply just way too many um, about that kind of thing. But I hope you can see the strategy that I that I am talking about here. 
that the president was deliberately employing um, to try and make it seem as if things are really, really, really good. Um, so, for example, um, and I'm cherry-picking because literally you can take any of the 34 pages and the overall problem that I've described will just jump out at you. He says, for example, many of our people are feeling the brunt of ever-rising living costs in the form of food prices, fuel prices and transport prices. The levels of poverty continue to give rise to a sense of hopelessness amongst people. But we also recognize that there are areas where progress has stalled and some areas where our achievements have been eroded. There are several reasons for this, including slow economic growth over more than a decade and the effects of the pandemic. Corruption and mismanagement have been have meant that resources meant for the poor have been um, diverted. Now, that's interesting because that's one of the examples where he manage, manages to acknowledge what's going on. But you don't have the numbers of people living in absolute poverty, the numbers of people living in relative poverty. You don't have any mention of asset inequality, income inequality, other kinds of inequality. Crucially, there's no analysis there of the empirical data that demonstrate a direct link between in particular, high levels of inequality and high levels of violent crime, which makes us more violent than countries that have smaller economies like our own compared to our own in the region. And so this is another example where you can trot out the familiar sentences without any numbers of the triple scourge that we are facing and then think that you are showing leadership and being honest in your self-examination. But then most of the 34 pages have got different kind of language, like one of the president's favorite phrases makes a cameo appearance very early on. And I almost laughed when I saw that because it is typical uh, President Ramaphosa uh, when you know he has hardly started his speech and um, he already starts talking about the green shoots are already becoming visible. And he is convinced that some of the economic activity that he had initiated as president of the country, the envoys that have helped him to try and get some investors to invest in the country, that that has resulted in green shoots. Now, I, I'm not sure about green shoots because once you start using imagery as a substitute for concrete numbers, I want to see actual shoots. I want to see schools that look like the definition of schools that my NG had agreed with equal education many years ago. In law, constitutes the definition of a school. I want to see and hear the numbers of schools where we've now eliminated the bucket system so that children do not fall into it and die like Michael Komapa had in 2015. I want to know how many of the feeding school Systems that had collapsed in particular in places like rural Eastern Cape have now been restored. I want to know how many bridges that had been as a result of state capture never been built and children die while trying to cross rivers have now been restored. And on that kind of minutiae, there's nothing. There's absolutely nothing. So the tactic from a speechcraft point of view was to pay lip service to the challenges and then only to talk numbers where there are nominally some fairly decent numbers that he might be able to cite. And here's another example of him doing that. Quote, just over 2.5 million people 
were receiving social grants in 1999. Today, over 18 million people are receiving these grants. Now, here's the problem, Houston. That is only an achievement if we know what it means to get a grant and what getting a grant does to you in terms of the rest of your life. Am I dependent on the state into perpetuity? Is that grant my only source of money with which to pay rent, buy prepaid electricity, to be able to buy some food for the table? How long does it last me? What happens in week three or four of the month? Given food inflation is as high as you have said in a different part of your speech, what is the quantum? And has it kept up with inflation? Not just any inflation, but in particular, a basket of goods that is specific to the goods typically bought by people living under conditions of poverty. Again, the detail is missing. 18 people receiving grants. I don't mind that as a taxpayer because I recognize that there is deep inequity in society and inequality is bad for all of us, including the, for the middle class, right? I get that. I'm happy to pay taxes. But I want to know whether I get returns on the investment as a Democrat, not just as a, as a taxpayer, but also as a taxpayer. What is the structure of those grants? And I'm not saying grants should necessarily be conditional. We can debate whether to apply the model that you find in some countries, in some parts of the global south, where, for example, you've got to prove maybe that you have been vaccinated before you get your grant. I don't think that kind of conditionality is a, is a bad thing. But whatever the case might be, surely we all ultimately want a social security system that leads to people being authors of their own lives because there is the ultimate dignity to be found in your ability to be independent of the state. That's not a right-wing argument. I make that argument as someone who self-identifies as deeply committed to black radical thinking and to egalitarian politics. I'm not saying that as someone who is a member of the South African Institute of Race Relations, as a libertarian, but as someone deeply committed to social democracy, what is happening to the grants? Again, there's absolutely nothing there by way of further analysis. We just have the stat that is dumped. And so we go on and on and on. We are told about how proud the president is of early childhood development that is now, for example, part of basic education, and how the metric pass rate last year when we then talk about basic education, was 76% when it used to be around 50% in the late 90s. But he quickly smooths over a horrible stat that around 50 or more than 50% of children who start in year one don't complete high school. Now, what the hell happens to these children? Where are they? No pausing over that. And so we go on and on and on and on. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish here by making an overall summary thought explicit. The African National Congress is usually, when it comes to their policy conference, excellent at self-diagnosis before trying to craft a vision for a different way forward. The president's speech today was weird because it was different. It was like a president desperate to be re-elected and therefore not focusing on an honest assessment of the state of the state as led by himself, but rather a speech that nominally makes tactical concessions, but overall is designed to boost his case for being re-elected as an individual. Do I blame him? Not from a real politic point of view. There's little in it that tells us about the state of the ANC 
which is a conversation that must happen, but also even if it was meant to be about the ANC as governing party, I think the president could still have made an implicit case for himself to be re-elected as president, while at the same time being more honest about the horrible truths of life in South Africa.